Somebody has to go out in the rain because they left their lights on. Let's see, a red Suburban, license number 4JSS494. Nobody wants to admit they left their lights on. So, all right, after church, we're going to know who it is because uh, you're going to have jumper cables sticking out of your hood. Of course, if you were me, you wouldn't know what your license number is, right? I have the foggiest idea what my license number is. But I don't drive a red Suburban, so I'm okay. Hey, in your bulletin, you'll notice a new handout, a different style handout. I just want to uh, take a couple of minutes of precious sermon time and talk to you about that. When we did uh, Preaching Lab this summer, I had uh, all the uh, guys reading a particular book on preaching that I thought was excellent. And as I, I had read it, and I read it again with them, and, and in there there was a suggestion on how to make your handout more um, useful to people, driving, help them to really apply the message. And uh, I, I was really um, bitten by that as I read it and decided back then that I was going to implement this, only waiting for the right time. And it seemed like the first of the year is just the right time to do all these kinds of things. And so... What I've done for you and what I'm going to continue to do for you by God's grace is to provide you with this handout every week, both morning and evening. And uh, let me just go through it with you very quickly. But you can see at the top, you've got the title in the box there. And I've given you the what's called homiletical proposition. The big idea of the sermon is there for you in the box. And then I've given you the outline. There's only two points to this morning's outline. So they're there for you. We've punched it with three holes. So if you choose to put it in any kind of a binder and keep it, you can do that. Flip it over. On the back, we've crafted some application questions. And these questions are to help you further apply the, the sermon material during the week. And this could be part of your own quiet time with the Lord. This could be used in a discipleship uh, arrangement with somebody else. It could be used as part of family devotions even. You could take, for example, one question per night and use them as part of your family devotions and that would be a way to just bring the whole family together around one theme. So those are just suggestions for you. Also giving you the Bible reading a week at a time there and it will be on the website and you can pick it up if you miss it that way. And then at the bottom, I've given you some additional study resources. Frequently, people will come and, and ask for recommendations on books, something that has been said in the sermon or, or that has, um, has caused them to become curious and want to study more deeply the topic. And so we've listed for you here some sources that are available to you either in our library or in our book nook. Uh, the long-term goal would be to be able to have everything available in the book nook that we would list here, but we're not there yet. But anyway, they're either out in the book nook for you or they certainly are down in the library and you could choose one of these and do further you know, work on your own. So all designed to help you to become not merely hearers of the word, but what? Doers of the word. Doers of the word. If we are merely hearers, we increase our condemnation. If we are doers of the word, we progress in righteousness. So open your Bibles up to uh, John chapter 14. Let me begin just by asking you a question. Have you ever 
experienced a time in your life when God seemed remote to you? Maybe somewhat untouchable, kind of out there somewhere. You, it's not that you don't believe in Him or anything like that. It's just he's, He just seems distant, kind of distant to you. Have you ever experienced that? When we were uh, in Pune, India, just a couple of months ago now, and, and uh, driving around there, there are all kinds of little idol temples. seems like virtually every street corner there was this little temple thing with an idol in it. Some were big enough to walk into, others were smaller. And frequently there would be a line out in front of them and the people would be there and they would go in and they would pray or present their votive uh, type of gift offering to the idol and then they would come back out. And it was everywhere. And as I was looking at these things, I couldn't help but think how unsatisfying that must really be to continue to go back there time and time again and, and to speak to this piece of wood or stone and nothing happens. It's just dead. You leave your fruit and the flies come and get it. And so it just the whole futility of it all. But these people are sincere. They want to know God. They want to experience God. They want to touch Him. That is a very common human feeling or desire. In fact, the, the desire to experience God, to, to touch God, to sense Him in even a physical way is what, one of the things that I believe drives what's the, the modern charismatic movement that has moved rapidly throughout all of Christendom, moving across denominational lines with impunity, even into Roman Catholicism and everywhere else. It's this, it's this passion to experience God in some fashion. It leads to all kinds of, of error with regard to worship. We talked some time ago, at least probably a year and a half, maybe two years ago now, about the error of aesthetic worship. The idea that somehow God can be worshipped through the senses. Whether we approach Him in the, in the area of stained glass and, and statues, or whether we approach Him through a ritual, or whether we approach Him through some sort of pageantry or, or as what I call bells and smells, the idea of incense and, and candles and you know, all kinds of noises, that sort of aesthetic idea. Or even music, from Bach to rock. It's all an idea for many to, start, to try to experience God, to touch God, to feel God, to, to know that He's there. But the Bible tells us very clearly that you can't, Reach out to God in that fashion. In fact, God has said very clearly in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit, right? And those who worship Him must worship in what? Spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. The message in the New Testament is exceedingly clear. The means to God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not know Christ, you do not know God. And the only way to know Christ is through the Word of God, through the Scriptures that you hold on your lap. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. Okay? It is through the Word of God that we meet God, that we know God, that we experience God. So as we're beginning this new year together, let's commit ourselves to the only means by which we can really know God, the Word of God. 
Okay, this is my encouragement to you. This is my plug for the Bible reading. Okay, you, you know God by reading the Word of God and you do it systematically so that you get to know God in His totality and His fullness. All right? So here we are. We're in John chapter 14. John 14. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11 together this morning. And like a coin has to have a heads and a tails in order to be a complete coin, in order to know God in, in any kind of full sense, there are really two foundational activities that are necessary for us. That is that we, we know God or knowing God requires thoughtful perception. Thoughtful perception and knowing God requires theological reflection. So here we are, John 14, beginning in verse 7. Follow along as I read the text for you. Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Now, it's been a month or more since we've been here in John 14. We took a break for the Christmas season. So let me refresh your, your minds here contextually that we can jump into the middle of this. This is occurring in the upper room, right, on the night in which he is betrayed. And there Judas has already been sent away. And so Jesus is now alone with his 11 inner core, the, the inner group, those that have been most faithful to him, have walked with him through these three years. And in this precious period of time, between the time when Judas is sent away, who goes to get the Roman authorities, and the time that he arrives, Jesus is going to compress into that short period of time some intense teaching for his disciples because he is leaving them. He's going to be crucified. And when he's crucified, it's going to devastate them. And so he is, he is doing a lot of preventative teaching right now, intense discipleship in this short time in order to get them ready for what's about to follow. And this particular part of it is centers around really four questions. The first one is back in chapter 13 where Peter in verse 36 of chapter 13 Asked Jesus the question, Lord, where are you going? Jesus has said, I'm going away. Where I go, you cannot come. Not now. And Peter says, well, I'll follow you anywhere, Lord. Where are you going? Just give me some directions and I'll follow. And then Jesus says, you're not going to follow me, Peter. You can't follow me. In fact, you're going to deny me before the night's out. And then Jesus answers Peter's question, chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. He tells Peter where he's going, right? He's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to the Father's house. He's going to prepare a place. He's coming back. And so there we follow then with a, a second question that Thomas asks in verse 5. And Thomas said, says to Sandy, basically, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus had said, you know, you know the way where I'm going. I'm going back to the Father. And he says, well, we don't really know. And then Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? No man comes to the Father but by me. 
And that leads us into the third question. There are four here. The fourth one is down in verse 22, where Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what has happened? You're not going to disclose yourself to, you know, you're going to disclose yourself to us, not to others. And we'll get into that later. But here we have the third question. Peter, or or Philip rather, asked this question. and And the question is essentially, Lord, won't you show us the Father? That's Philip's question. Just give us some kind of manifestation of the Father because we don't really know what you're talking about still. Help us out here. We're a little lost. And that's where Jesus is going to respond for us here. Now, verse 7, take a look back at that. That's kind of the transitional verse between Jesus' answer to Thomas's statement and the question that Philip is going to process. Now, you understand there's a dialogue is going on here, and we're kind of jumping in and out of it week to week, but the dialogue is progressing. And notice here in verse 7, we have a conditional construction here. If you had known me. So Jesus is saying to them, basically, you don't really know me. Because if you really had known me, you wouldn't be asking me these questions. This would be known by you by now. You've walked with me a long time. So if you had known me, okay, then you would know the Father. So that they have known Christ. Is that right? I mean, they've followed him. They've declared him Messiah early on. Even uh, Philip himself says, you know, that this is the, this is the Messiah. This is the, the prophesied one. So they do know a lot about Jesus. And they've known enough about Jesus to leave their fishing business and to follow him and to drop everything to go after him. So it's not like they don't know anything about him. It's just Jesus is saying here is you don't really fully comprehend me yet. You know a lot, but you don't know enough. You know a lot about me, but you don't know enough. As as highly as you think about me, you still haven't really grasped the full extent of who I am. Okay? So, just knowing something is not enough. You have to have have a fuller understanding. Look again at the verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Meaning you don't really know God yet. But look at here in the end of the verse. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Something is changing here for them right now. Well, what is changing? Well, Jesus is giving them this intense teaching about who he really is. He's going to spell it out very clearly for him, his equality with the Father. And not only that, a little further on in the chapter, he's going to say, I'm going away, but I'm not leaving you as an orphan because I'm going to send the Spirit of God, right, the promised one, who will be your teacher and he will lead you into all truth. So what you've failed to grasp up to this time, it's, it, it's going to come to you now in a short period of time. But right now, you don't know like you ought to know. You don't understand like you ought to understand. Now, the, the, uh, the Greek here is, is somewhat instructive where, where he uses two words. He uses the word gnosko and the word horao, to, translated to know and to see. And those words imply more than just uh, cognitive knowledge with regard to knowing or uh, the impression of light waves on the retina of the eye with regard to seeing. He's talking about more than just physical seeing, more than just cognitive intellectual knowing. He's talking about perceiving. He's talking about understanding here. And he's saying that you don't really perceive, you don't really understand the reality of what it is before you. Okay? And if you don't understand the reality of the incarnate Christ before you, you do not really 
know God. You don't really know God, not yet, but it's coming to you. All right? As I said, it is the ministry of the Spirit of God that is going to bring this fuller knowledge to them. Look, for example, over in chapter 16 and in verse 13 there, where the promised Spirit says, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. So it is the Spirit of God that will guide them into the truth. That's why Jesus says, from now on, I'm leaving. When I go, I send who? The Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will correct your defective theology. He will fill in the missing pieces for you. Verse 26, John 14, right? He says, the Holy Spirit and the Father will send, will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. He will pull it all together for you. And then you will really know God as you should. Now look at verse 8. Peter's missing this. You know, I love these uh, disciples because they're so much like us. And they, and they, they miss things that, that allow uh, us to see the fuller explanation. And so here is Philip. Jesus has just said all this, and Philip is still probably scratching his head and thinking back to something that Jesus had said earlier. And, and so Philip says, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and, and that's enough for us. That's all I want. Just give us a theophany. Okay, if you'll do that, then that's all I need for you, okay? Just grant us some kind of a vision. Now, I don't know if Philip was from Missouri originally or, or what, but, but what he's saying is, you know, it's not enough. The teaching doesn't do it. I've got to see something just with my eyes, right? Seeing is what? Well, except in the Bible world, okay? You know, when it comes to God, that's not true because God is spirit and what? He can't be seen, okay? But Philip is here asking for this Theophany, he understands Jesus is leaving. That's clear enough. He's gotten that far. But now he wants some kind of a visible manifestation. His faith is sagging. He doesn't really know where Jesus is going. Jesus is talking about going to the Father's house. He's talking about being the way, the truth, and the life. And, and Philip's a little confused. And so he's saying, come on, just, just help us out here and give us something. He is mistakenly thinking here that if, if he could just have a theophany, just some sort of sight you know, vision of God, then, then all of his problems will be resolved. His faith will be strengthened, and he'll be ready to go. Now, he's a Jew, so it's not, he doesn't think that he can reach out and touch God. Okay? He's not asking for that. What he's asking for is some sort of Old Testament-type theophany, some sort of appearance of God. Remember, Moses wanted to see God too. You remember that? And so God condescended and granted Moses, and that's a, you know, it's a really... Um, sort of mysterious section of, of Exodus where he talks about hiding him in the cleft of the rock, right? Covering him with his hand and passing by and saying his, his name before him and pulling his hand away and, and, um, and Moses gets to see his hindwood parts. Now, we don't really know what all that means, okay? But Moses saw something there. We can go to Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah sees a theophany. He sees the risen Christ there on the throne in Isaiah 6. So there is some, some Old Testament um, theophanies, that, and maybe Philip is, is thinking on those. And what he's saying is, just give me something like that. If you'll just show us that, 
That's good enough. But see, here's the problem. Philip is really trading what I would call a banquet feast for a cold soup. Now think with me on this. Standing before Philip and speaking to him is whom? Is Christ the incarnate God, right? Standing before him, speaking to him, and what does Philip want? He wants some sort of an Old Testament revelation of, of some kind of a theophany. Give me something that Moses had. Philip, we've progressed way beyond Moses. You don't want to go back there. That's cold soup, Philip. Right here before you is the living God. Right? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen whom? You've seen him. All right? How like us Philip really is. Hmm? He wants to trade in the banquet for, the, for yesterday's cold soup, just like us. I mean, Philip is a really unique character here in John's Gospel. We see him at his best when he is bringing people to Christ. Right? Back in John 2, we see him bringing people to Christ. Or excuse me, John 1. And then we see him over in John 12, and he's bringing the Gentiles to Christ. So when he's operating in that sense, he's, he's you know, operating at a, at a commendable level. But, but he also is a man of very weak faith. Over in John chapter 6, when they're feeding the 5,000, Jesus turns to Philip and says to him, you know, uh, where are you going to get the food, Philip, to feed all these people? And Philip says, man, we don't have enough money to feed all these people. Okay? And, and so he completely misses what Jesus is capable of there, and he does the same here. He does the same here. He's looking for some sort of sensation, some sort of physical sensation to help him with his faith. Now, notice how Jesus responds to him here. Right? Jesus responds to him and says... Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? I've been, I've been with you three years. Three years you've lived with me, you've walked with me, you've eaten with me, you've slept with me, you've done ministry together with me. And you don't understand who I am yet, Philip? You want sight? You don't want to trade that. You don't want to trade that in. You know, and this is, uh, this is really instructive for us, folks. Because if it's a sight issue, we're in trouble. How many of you have ever wondered or, or thought, wouldn't it, uh, boy, I wished I could have walked with Jesus? Ever thought about that? You know, boy, I would believe so much more if I could have been back there and walked with Him. Right? Seen all those miracles and done all that stuff. Listened to His teaching. You know, I could have sat there at His feet could have talked, you know, given the Sermon on the Mount, I would have heard it. Oh, I would have been so strong in my faith. I'd be so strong. I wish I could have had that. Not so. Not so at all. Or have you ever wondered if I could have just, if I could just have a vision of God? Just give me a vision, God. Just, you know, do something to show me. I'll, you know, and then I'll be so much stronger. Terrible. Just like Philip. That's who we are. We're just like Philip. We're, we're looking for something to bolster. And we're trading the banquet for the soup. Beloved, if it, uh, if it required seeing Jesus, we're all in trouble, right? Why? You can't see Him. <laughs> That's why. 
If it required theophanies, we'd be in trouble too because God doesn't give them anymore. That's the message of Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. And by the way, if you come Sunday night, tonight, we begin our series in Hebrews together, okay? That's my advertisement for that. So, no more theophanies, and you can't see Jesus, or at least not with your physical eyes. So what in the world do we do? The answer lies here. If seeing is perceiving and understanding, then we're in great shape. We are in absolutely great shape because we have before us the Scriptures. Right? Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that they contain everything necessary for life and godliness. Does that leave any room for anything that got left out? The answer is no. Everything necessary for life and godliness are contained here in the Word of God. And Paul tells us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 13 that it is the Spirit of God that opens our eyes to understand the Word of God. And so that we can really perceive, we can really see Jesus, it just requires us to thoughtfully consider Him. It should continue to amaze you of the, of the advantage that you have here in the beginning of the 21st century above most of the people of God throughout all the generations. And that is that you hold in your hands, you think with me on this, you hold in your hands the completed revelation of God in your own language. Do you know that most believers never had the Word of God in any kind of written form, and certainly not in their own languages in a full, bound version, beginning to end, sitting on their laps. This is an incredible privilege that we bear. You want to see God? You see God when you see Christ. You want to see Christ? You see Christ where? In the Word of God. In the Word of God. So we, had, we need to give ourselves to that task of looking for Jesus here in the Word of God. Now Jesus is uh, here back in verse 9. He is rebuking Philip. This is, it's, it's a gentle rebuke, acknowledged. I mean, he's not coming down on him like a ton of bricks, but he is rebuking him here. Again, look at him. He said to him, Have you been so long yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Implied here is that you should know me. If you've been with me this long, then you should know me. By the way, the you here is a plural you, and so he's speaking to Philip, but he's speaking through Philip to all the other 11, or the other 10, rather, disciples here. So Philip is the mouthpiece, but he's only expressing what's in the rest of their minds. Okay, So the, the general rebuke flows beyond Philip and out to all of them. And by the way, beloved, I think it flows through them to us. Okay? Have you been so long and yet you know so little? It's unacceptable, Philip. It's an unacceptable condition to be in to have spent this long with me and not to know me. How long have you been a Christian? How long have you professed your faith in Christ? And how well do you know Him? 
Are you advancing in your spiritual understanding of who Christ is? You're, or are you sort of stuck halfway somewhere on the road? Has your, has your knowledge progressed beyond basics, what I call Sunday school knowledge? Meaning, you, you know, you know the Bible stories. You, you can't figure out how they all thread together, but you're at least, you know, if I say David and Goliath, you think about, a, you know, a guy in a stone and, you know, knocking down a big giant. And you know that much, which, by the way, is poquito. You know, that's, you need to do a lot better than that. Is that where you are? You've just sort of stalled in this thing. Are you like Philip? Have you been with me so long and, and yet you don't really know? You don't know. I mean, dads, when you, can you explain the Bible to your kids? You know, maybe that's one of the reasons why family devotions, you don't do them. It's because you're afraid they're going to ask you a question you can't answer. Shame. Get a study Bible with some notes in it. So when they ask you a question, you scratch your head and look down at the notes. And you, you know, you repeat the question. That's a really good question. And you read the notes quick and come back with, you know, give them an answer. I mean, I was just talking about diligence. Right? I'm talking about laziness, too. I'm talking about laziness. Can you look at your life and, and, and look back and see spiritual progress? See that you are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you want to know God, it requires a thoughtful perception. Okay? A thoughtful perception. And the thoughtful perception, who God is, comes in a contemplation of Him in the Scriptures. And that really leads us, as I say, to our second essential requirement here, and that is that it requires theological reflection. You need to perceive what it is you're reading, and then you need to reflect upon it theologically. Look again at verse 9. Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? That is a shocking statement. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip is a Jew. Philip's an Orthodox Jew. And if the Orthodox Jews knew anything, they knew that God was invisible. Okay? God was invisible. He was not an idol that could be seen with the human eye or made the work of man's hands. They also knew that God was one, right? The Shema, behold all Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jesus now says here in verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Incredible. Incredible statement. It's a statement that requires you to sit down and really think about it. Process it. What is it that he's saying here? I mean, some would tell you that Jesus was no more than a human envoy of God. So, you know, just a messenger who came, a prophet, yes. A good man, yes. A teacher of righteousness, yes. A mouthpiece for God as some sort of prophet, yes. But that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't allow himself to be put in the box of, of some spokesman of God in a long line of spokesmen, just a mere human. Look at what he says again. Put your eyes back on that verse. He who has seen me has seen the Father, the invisible one, the one who is one. 
This is more than a mere human, more than a man. He refers to himself as the one sent by not just the Father, but his Father. He calls God his Father. Further, he says that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Beyond that, he affirms a mutual indwelling between himself and the Father. Look down at verse 10. I am in the Father, and the Father is what? In me. He just continues to pile up the theological statements here. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He's talking about a mutual indwelling. He's saying that the life of the Father is in me, and my life is in the Father. What in the world is he talking about? Well, beloved, he is talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. He is talking about the triune God, the one true God. The God that, in, according to the, to, to the creed, is one in essence and three in persons, right? One God, yes. Eternally appearing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's talking about ontology here. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Ontology, that's just a fancy Greek word to talk about being, nature. He's saying that we share godness. The life of the Father, verse 10, is in me. It is in me. We share an essence together. Look again at verse 10. Notice how the question is formed here by Jesus. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The, the form of the question there demands a positive answer, an affirmative answer. It is expected that Philip will say yes to that question. I do believe that you are in the Father and the Father is in me. He expects Philip to know Understand, acknowledge the triune nature of God. It's a pretty big stretch, isn't it? It's a mystery. We can't comprehend the Godhead, not in totality, certainly, for the finite can never comprehend the infinite. But there is a level of understanding that is expected here. Philip and your brothers here, I expect that you would understand some of this. I mean, after all, you've been with me so long. You've seen who I am. You've seen what I've done. You've, seen, you've heard my words. You've seen my heart. You've witnessed the miracles. There should be no question in your mind as to who I am. You know, it's fashionable for some people to revel in their theological ignorance. It always distresses me when I run across somebody like that, but I'll have somebody come up to me and tell me proudly that they're a pan-millennialist. Pan-millennialist. And then they'll want me to ask, well, what does that mean? But, you know, I already know what it means, but, you know, you've got to play along with it in order to get it done. So I'll say, well, what does that mean? And they'll say, well, it means it'll all pan out in the end. And then they're real, you know, smug about that. And um, that, that's nothing to be proud of. 
that you don't understand the millennium and how it all fits together, that's nothing to be proud of. That's reveling in your ignorance. For the Bible is very clear that there will be a millennial kingdom and that Christ will return prior to the millennial period. And so to, to just say, well, it doesn't matter, I don't care, the Bible's not clear, that's nothing to revel in. Or, or to ask the question, as some do, what's the least amount of theological understanding that a person can have and still be a Christian? What kind of question is that? You know, what is the irreducible minimum that I have to know? You know, you, you sound like a third grader getting ready to take a test. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20 to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How much do you need to know as a Christian? Answer, all of it. From Genesis to Revelation. You know, it's not like, well, I only need to know this much and the rest of it I don't need to know. Yeah, you do. You're supposed to pursue it. Or you have people talking about, uh, you know, watch out for the danger of cold, dead orthodoxy. Please. I have met very few people in my life that are in the danger of cold, dead orthodoxy. Okay? Most people don't know enough theology to be cold, dead, and orthodox. Most people are alive, vibrant, and very unorthodox in their theology. And they need a, they need a massive infusion of truth. Square them away. Yeah. Theology should fan the flame in your soul. It should warm your heart to God. It should look like, um, you know when you're out camping, you've got a nice campfire going, and you get some of those dry pine logs, you toss them on the fire. You better step back when you do that, right? I mean, they, just, boom, they burst into flames, and the heat's pouring out of them, you know, and they're popping and snapping and crackling. It's just great. That's what theology ought to do to you. When you read a theology book, your heart should just well up in passion for the living God. Should excite you. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father? Father's in me, verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. The word abiding, it means living. The Father living in me does his works. Notice how it's a it's kind of an unbalanced statement here. Look again closely with me, verse 10, second half. The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own, my own initiative. You would expect him to say, but I speak the words that the Father speaks. That's not what he says, though. Notice how he does it. He says, you know, I don't speak my own words, but the words I speak, right? They don't come from me, but they come from my Father who is doing the works, abiding in me. He's just tying it all together. He's saying it's not just what I say that comes from the Father, it's but what I do comes from the Father because the Father lives in me. We're one. Believe me. See it there in verse 11? That's a command. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That is a direct command from Christ to his disciples to believe the Trinity. That to believe that he is God. And that he and the Father share the same divine essence. You know, faith in Christ is a relationship with the living God. That's absolutely true. It is a relationship. But it is not just a relationship. It is a relationship built in truth. There is an intellectual component of being a Christian. And Jesus has given it to them here, strong, undiluted, full measure, meat for the teeth. 
Okay? Believe it. Believe it. How often have you heard people say that doctrine divides? Right? Have you heard that statement? Doctrine divides. Let's just all love Jesus. You ever heard that one? Why don't we just all love Jesus? My response to that is, what Jesus are you talking about? Are you talking about the Jesus that died on a cross so that you could uh, be free from your mistakes and, you know, and the, and the wrong decisions you've made in life and that you can enjoy a full and happy life? Is that the Jesus you're talking about? Or are you talking about the Jesus who died on a cross to absorb fully the wrath of God against your sin? The fact that you are in enmity with God, that you hate God and the things of God, you have no desire for God at all, and that you justly reside under His condemnation. That in your thoughts, your words, your deeds, you're infected with your sin down to the, to the lowest level of your being. That you need radical redemption because you have radical corruption. Is that the Jesus you're talking about? I agree with you. Let's love Him. Let's love Him. See, but when you just reduce stuff down to the bare minimum, you may use the same words, but you're not communicating the same ideas. Okay? Theology. It's huge. Very important. Look again here, verse 11. Believe me, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And then Jesus goes on and he says, Otherwise believe on account of the works themselves. If you're not quite there yet, if you, if you can't just take him at his word, then, then contemplate his works. Think it through. Remember, this gospel was written so that you may what? Believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in His name. And so John structures this gospel around seven miracles. We've looked at them. They're, they're past now. But he has intentionally structured his gospel around them. What he's saying to you as the reader is that if you're not quite there yet, then, then stop and think about what it is you have just, excuse me, just witnessed in these seven miracles. Think about turning water into wine. That is a miracle on the order of creation. Water to wine. Think about healing the sick, the lame, right? The blind. That is power over the curse. Think about raising the dead. That is power over life itself. Think about casting out demons. That is power over the spirit world. Think about raising Lazarus. And then think through it. Think through it. Don't just look at it and say, wow, that was interesting. Think through it. The man who could do that would be God. Would be God himself. Jesus' works identify him with none other than God himself. He is the living God standing before those disciples in the flesh. And beloved, although we don't see Him in the flesh now, we see Him with eyes of faith, perceiving Him as recorded for us in the Word of God. Right? John begins his Gospel and he says that in the beginning was the, the Word. He was the Word. He is the Word. He's the Word to us now. Processing all this requires thoughtful perception. It requires theological reflection. Do you know God? Do you really know God?
Do you know Christ? Because if you don't know Christ, you don't know God. The Apostle Paul was consumed with the passion to know Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, listen, beginning in verse 8, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul's consuming passion was to know God in Christ. What is your passion as we enter into this new year together? What consumes you? Let's pray. God, our Father, we beseech you to work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to fill us with a passion and a desire to know you. Father, we acknowledge and are quick to acknowledge that the only way to know you is through Christ and the only way to know Christ is through his written and revealed word. And so, Lord, the path is obvious to us. Our problem lies not in knowing where to go. Our problem lies in the weakness of our will to go there. So, Father, I ask you to work in each and every one of our hearts beginning now and into this year, and to give us a burning desire to know you in the Scriptures. Lord God, we're, we expect we'll probably fail. That's been our lot. That's been our experience. We ask you, when we do, to forgive us, to help us to get back up again and begin to walk in righteousness. Lord, I pray that as we look back the end of 2005, that we would be able to see significant spiritual growth in our own lives. We pray these things, not for our glory, but for the glory of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.